We are back in the book of Exodus again this week, and uh, last week I sort of set the stage for you, kind of building up all the dramatic parts and pieces that are contained in this book. It is an adventure story. Um, uh, there's a villain and a hero. There's a dramatic escape. There's a climb up the mountain. God descends into the tabernacle. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing. And so this morning we're, we're picking back up in uh, chapter 2. And you heard what Ina read to us. Um, and the context surrounding that includes Pharaoh, who had decreed because of the growth of the Hebrew people there in Egypt that all male children, basically two years and under, I suppose, would, would be put to death. Um, all, all male children, when they were born, essentially were going to be put to death. And in the midst of that circumstance then, a Levite man marries a, uh, a Levite woman, and they have a son, and the son is born, and she sees he's a fine child, and so she keeps him and hides him as long as she can. And when that time is up, about three months, then she places him in a basket and sets him off down the river, and the sister, the older sister of the boy, looks to see what's going to happen, and the basket floats down and is caught in the weeds and taken up by one of the Pharaoh's daughter's servants, and she has pity upon the child, gives it back to the child's own mother and pays the mother to nurse the child. And then when the child is older, the mother brings her back and she is adopt he is adopted into um, the family of Pharaoh's daughter. So again, we start out with a fairly dramatic story. The hero is under the threat of death by drowning or death by execution one way or the other. And he's sort of preserved in this miraculous way. Um, so that sort of brings us up to speed. We're in a dramatic story. Here's a dramatic beginning. And uh, as we lead into it this morning, I invite you to, to pray with me now. Uh, Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the drama that you are unfolding uh, all around us. The, um, the life that you have given us, the life that you've given this world, and um, the dramatic work of salvation, this uh, wonderful rescue that you have entered into the story yourself in this person of your son, Jesus, so that we too might be drawn out. Um, drawn out of a world of, of sin and death and despair and drawn into your world of hope and faith and love. And so as we open up the pages of your word this morning, we pray that it would become alive to us and alive in us and that you would show us the, the next step we are to take um, with this, uh, this book that is a light unto our path, uh, and a lamp unto our soul. So come and speak, Lord Jesus, we pray, and open our ears in the power of your Spirit to hear. Amen. So I'm going to, this morning, um, this is, you know, we're just making our way into this book, and so I'm still in some ways doing some preliminary work to set forth uh, sort of the pieces that we need in place to hopefully enter into what God's saying to us more fully. And so last week we set the whole story in relief and named some of the dramatic parts in, in the entirety of the book, right? And then this week, uh, what I'd like to do in the beginning is to, is to sort of go back through some of that, but connect some of the old story to some of the New, New Testament story of Christ. Um, I said that um, the, uh, 
story of the Exodus is the archetypal deliverance story of the Old Testament. It's the preeminent deliverance story. But I also said in every way it points us forward to the deliverance story of Jesus. So what I want to do this morning is to draw a few of those connections uh, more explicitly in the big picture, and then we'll come back to our story and see how we can uh, integrate some of this into our own life and practice. <clears throat> so we're still kind of thinking, thinking big picture here. And the way in um, will be along the lines of a confirmation class that we had I don't, I, I'm, four or five years ago. Uh, Mason and John Henry went through the confirmation class, and uh, at which point uh, John Henry, who had been baptized as a child, um, entered into the membership of the church and confessed his faith um, before all of us. And then uh, Mason was baptized along with his cousin Maddie, uh, Ina's grandkids, and also joined the church. And so uh, the questions they had to answer when they met with the session, which, which sounds very scary, right? Uh, but it's not at all. Uh, the, the questions they had to answer had to do with the Exodus story. And along the way, sometimes I gave them maybe sort of a little bit of a leading question or a prompt, but we, we covered this and they knew it pretty well. I, I asked them, how does the Exodus story sort of point us forward to the story of Christ? Um, and how can we understand our own lives in light of that framework? All right, so here's a couple boys, at 14, I think, something like that at the time and uh, maybe 15, 14, 15. And so here they go, off down there. This is what, this is what they said. They said, well, um, the book of Exodus begins with the Hebrew people in, enslaved to Pharaoh. Uh, in our own Christian lives, in the beginning of the New Testament, begins with kind of the world enslaved, us enslaved to sin and death. So it sort of both begins in a... Um, an example of, of slavery or enslavement. Then, in the Old Testament, uh, a deliverer is born. Moses, that's what, we, that's what Ina read for us this morning. A deliverer is born. And <clears throat> as he kind of grows up, uh, he is taken into the home of Pharaoh's daughter. And so you've got this Hebrew child who is born, but also is then has kind of this dual status. So he's both Hebrew, but he's also part of the Egyptian royal family, right? So he has sort of this twofold identity. And then Jesus, of course, comes from the heavenly throne room and, and is incarnate among us uh, and bears also this dual identity, this deliverer that God gives to us is both fully human and also fully God. So there's a twofold aspect to who Christ is. And then they said... Um, in both of these instances, as, as God sends these deliverers and as they bring the people out of the bondage they suffer, uh, they pass through water. So the people of Israel, or the Hebrews at this point, pass through the sea as Moses leads them out. And then in the New Testament, Jesus um, leads us through the waters of baptism. And of course, that was connecting to uh, their entrance into the church and Mason's baptism and so on. So, so we, we both pass through water into a new identity led by the deliverer who has a twofold identity. And then, of course, each of these persons, uh, well, we'll begin with Moses. Moses leads the people out of 
slavery through the sea, and then up on top of Mount Sinai, where God gives the Ten Commandments to him on tablets of stone, and he brings them down for all the people. In the New Testament, in Matthew, uh, soon after Christ's own baptism, he makes his way a little farther, and then chapters 5 through 7, climbs up on top of a mountain and proceeds to give them the law, the Sermon on the Mount, in which he sets forth a lot of the moral framework uh, that we're called to live in as Christians. And what's interesting is that now in this instance with Jesus, we see uh, as we climb the mountain with him, we don't just get 10 new commandments or something. No, we meet the actual lawgiver. The one Moses climbed up and saw, now we're able to see in the sermon atop the mount. Then, after they come back down, um, Moses wanders in the wilderness for 40 years with all the people. Remember this? They had, they had uh, responded in um, disobedience, and God says, well, this generation is going to have to wander around and learn. You have to learn how to trust and depend on me. And so he sends... They're out in the wilderness, out in the desert. He sends to them manna, bread from heaven. He sends to them uh, quail in the evening. Uh, he provides for them water out of the rock. And he makes a way for his people. In the New Testament, and in our lives, of course, after we pass through the waters of baptism, after we receive a new way of life in Christ, a new way to operate in the world, um, but before we cross over the Jordan into the promised land, well, our, our life is characterized by sort of this wilderness journey. That's where we are right now, during which time God provides for us. And we have to learn to trust God. I mean, that's a big part of what we're doing right here, isn't it? We have to learn to trust God, and he provides for us bread come down from heaven, and he provides for us water. He gives us life. So we learn to trust that. And of course, after this, the people do eventually make it to the Jordan River, which was sort of their final crossing over water into the promised land of Israel. In the Old Testament, Moses actually doesn't make that final journey. Do you remember this? He had to climb up on top of a mountain and watch the people go through from a distance. Moses dies without actually entering into the promised land. Who led them through? Remember? Joshua. Joshua led the people in, sort of the handing off to the next leader. Joshua leads them in, which um, in Hebrew is Yeshua. In Greek, it's Jesus. In English, you could say Jesus. Same name. And so in the New Testament, the one who ultimately leads us across Jordan into the new creation, into the promised land, uh, into that country where we will be with God and God with us. The one who leads us there is not Moses, the law. The law can't actually get you there. It's Jesus. It's the one who comes in grace. It's the one whose name means God saves. That's who gets us into that final promised land. Uh, it's Yeshua. It's Jesus. It's, it's Christ Jesus. And so there you can see from the mouths of couple of confirmation students, 14 years old, some pretty significant connections between the second book of the Bible, what Christ has come and done, and our lives present here and now. Um, 
It's a way of understanding and reading the Bible uh, that's called a typological reading. Um, we'll put it like this. Uh, Moses uh, would be, and the people of Israel making this journey is the type. Another word for type is copy. They are the copy. Christ is the antitype. And you hear anti and you think, well, that's not good. But no, he, it's like saying he's the original. He's not the copy. He's the original. Um, as we read the Old Testament, part of what I hope we can do as we move through Exodus is come to understand the Old Testament in a deeper way and be able to find more there. Um, and so as we read the Old Testament, we find types of Christ, who is the antitype. Another way of understanding this is when Moses went up the mountain... And Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament makes a big deal about this. Moses goes up the mountain. He receives the Ten Commandments. He also received a copy of something. Some instructions on how to construct, how to build a tabernacle where God would reside with them as they wandered through the wilderness, as they learned to trust Him. And this tabernacle was patterned after the heavenly reality He had been given to see. In this instance... The heavenly thing is the antitype, the copy he receives, and upon which the earthly tabernacle is based, is the type. It's the copy of the original thing. And that's why, actually, our churches follow that same outline, same pattern. Uh, when we gather here, we gather in a space that is uh, supposed to be analogous, a copy of sorts, of the divine throne room. So it's pretty neat, right? Um, you could look at other figures in the Old Testament. Um, certainly, we could look at Moses. Uh, Hebrews, again, makes a big deal about Jesus being the greater Moses. The book of Matthew itself looks at Moses and Jesus together and kind of lines them up and shows how Jesus is sort of like another Moses come to deliver God's people, but a greater one. Um, you can look at Paul's conversation about Jesus being the second Adam. You ever thought when God says, let's make uh, humanity in our image, male and female, let's make them? Whose image Adam and Eve were actually made in? Well, Jesus. Jesus is the original. They're the type. They're the copy. Christ is the original, right? So they, they're made in the image of Jesus. Some of that image has been distorted and twisted in us now, but that is also the image that is being set right in us. You could look at David the king of Israel, and the promises God makes of a greater king who will sit upon the throne of Israel forever. Um, you can look at all manner of different places and begin to see in the Old Testament the story of Christ. Now, this might sound familiar because I've mentioned some of this to you before. <clears throat> Three ways to read the Bible that correspond to the human person, the body, the soul, and the spirit. The level of the body is the literal level. And often we get caught up there. The level of the, the soul is the level of uh, sort of the moral level, the moral component. And then the level of the spirit is the level at which we meet Christ in the pages. So what I'm describing to you is a way of meeting Christ in the Old Testament, a way of meeting Christ as we read in the spirit, we can come to understand more fully who he is. Um, which brings us now back to today's passage. And Moses and Jesus... Uh, side by side. There's some commonalities that we can see in regards to their birth. Um, first of all, they're both male children who were born beneath 
uh, a death sentence. They are both um, condemned to die even at the moment of their birth. For Moses, this is what Enoch read today. Clear enough, right? Um, all the male children in Israel were to be put to death so they wouldn't rise up and overthrow their taskmasters. When Jesus was born, remember the wise men came, they saw a star, and, then, and they came and they found Herod, and they inquired, they said, we've seen a sign in the heavens, a king is going to be born, and we want to know where we can go, a great king, where we can go and meet him, and pay homage and worship and offer gifts. And Herod says, oh yeah, tell me about this king. I too would like to go and worship him and pay tribute. <clears throat> of course, Herod all along just kind of wants to know, well, when was he born perhaps? And maybe where is he located so that he can what? Immediately hand down this death sentence, male children, two and under, put to death tomorrow. All right? So both Moses and Jesus are born with the king saying the male children are to be put to death. Fascinating, Moses escapes this death threat by going even further into the heart of Egypt, didn't he? Even into the Pharaoh's palace, right? The very place from which this edict came is the place to which uh, Moses is drawn. And then, you may remember, in Jesus' own story, that Joseph, his father, father was warned, stepfather was warned in a dream to flee because of this, because Herod was out to get them. Who remembers where he fled? He went to Egypt, right? This is where Jesus goes to escape. The same place. You see how these two side by side have so much in common. This is where Jesus goes and eventually, Matthew says, so that he might fulfill that prophetic word um, that speaks of Israel, God speaking of Israel, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. In the Old Testament, sometimes Jesus refers to Israel as his son. Uh, but also we can see how Christ as the son is drawn out of Egypt. <clears throat> to take it just one step further, how did Israel end up in Egypt to begin with? Time of famine? How were they saved there? Well, Joseph, the son of Jacob was good at interpreting dreams. Joseph, who could read dreams, is the one who ended up delivering his people and making a way in Egypt for them. And now in the New Testament, the husband of Mary, Joseph, happens to be good at dreams and has a dream, and this is how they experience salvation. You see how these things are just beginning to connect and overlap in neat ways. So again, this is in the, in the big picture. This is maybe at the level of the Spirit where we can identify Christ in the Old Testament. And I don't know, like I get, I had to kind of stand up a little bit at 9 o'clock in early service because I was getting pumped. I was getting excited because this stuff gets me going and fired up. One person told me it, it gets me pumped up too, so I didn't feel so bad. But I was ready to go. I, like this is what I spend my week getting excited about and being interested in. And... Um, but maybe you're like, well, that's kind of neat, but um, okay. <laughs> I mean, maybe, I don't know. <clears throat> and so what I'd like to do is like, see how we could take, because this is a big picture thing. 
And big picture things, it's, it's sometimes hard to figure out how does this make its way to me? How does this make a difference for me? And certainly coming to know Christ more fully makes all the difference to you. But I think that our passage this morning opens up just a little window into another way of reading, into this new way of reading uh, that can connect a little bit with you. And in order to get there, we're going to be, uh, I'm going to be following a guy named Gregory of Nyssa. And um, I would, I would, you know, I can't say, make this as a blanket statement, but I think this way of reading opens up to us that level, you know, body, soul, spirit, that second level, the level of the soul, the level at which we become transformed in, a, in maybe a moral sense. And Gregory Nyssa wrote a book called The Life of Moses, and it's a classic. It's like, this is, what, this is one of the incredibly formative books in the life of the church throughout history. And so I'm going to hopefully be referring to that sometimes as we move through the book of Exodus. But this morning, I want to open up to you a little bit um, uh, some of how he understands this book, how he understands Moses in the beginning. And in order, here's, here's one more framework to give you before we get specifically into it. When we worship, we follow a basic pattern of purification, illumination, and perfection. Purification is when we confess our sin, so we might be purified and forgiven. Illumination happens when we open the scripture and are led by the light of the word. And are illumined, we, we begin to see more of ourselves, of God, of the world, what God wants with us. And finally, in the end, we come to this place of, of perfection or union at the table where we receive Christ's body and blood and are transformed uh, in that way and joined to God. Purification, illumination, perfection. This is the basic outline of the entire Christian life. So in the beginning, you meet Jesus, you experience salvation, you pass through the waters of baptism. What do I do? Well, if that wilderness journey is any indication... We have to learn to trust. We have to learn to be transformed. We have to be changed. And of course, that covers a wide range of things. You know the things in you that probably still need to be changed. The sin that clings so closely that we need to put aside that you do. And also the good that needs to come to us from Christ so that we end up now bearing not only the image of God, but also the likeness of God. Not just that you don't do bad things, but so that your life is full of all the good God wants to give in order that you might bless the world and those around you. Purification, illumination, and perfection. Three stages. So if, he's gonna, if Gregory Vinus is going to give us, at the beginning of Moses' life, some first steps along the way of this long dramatic journey, dramatic thing, where do you think he'll start? Maybe in that purification stage. Because it's at the beginning. And all of this stuff lines up on top of each other. So in the beginning, that's where we're going to begin with Moses. It's sort of this purification stage. So specifically, Gregory understands Moses and reads Moses in this contemplative fashion as a picture of virtue. Now what that meant to him is something like what we might say by sanctification. It's how we're made holy. 
It's how those, that old life and old self is stripped away and we enter into the new life of God. Moses is a picture for us of that passage. And how does it begin? Well, it begins with Moses' birth, doesn't it? So something new, if it's going to come into your life, is kind of like something is born in you. Again, if you look at the Christian life, Mary is this prototypical image. Christ is born in her. She surrenders to the will of God. She says, let it be unto me as you have said. In the same way, we're called to say, let it be unto me as you have said, God. Let me be transformed. Does anyone want to be transformed? To be changed. This is how it begins to happen. That has to, that has to be born in you. And so that's where Gregory of Nyssa starts. Um, he says, the parents of Moses is our free will. So if the life of Jesus is going to be born in us, who are the parents? He says, our free will is our parents. That sounds like a theological, philosophical word. When I read that, it implies distance to me. Like, it's difficult. Here's what that means. If that's going to happen for you, you have to want that to happen for you. God isn't going to force that upon you. You, like Mary, have to say, let it be unto me as you have said. You have to use your free will for this new life to happen. Does that make sense? Like You have to, you have to decide. You want, if you want to get a scoop of ice cream out of your freezer, it's fine to think that ice cream's in there and it tastes good and I'd love to eat it. But if you want to get it, you're going to have to stand up and walk in there, open the door and scoop it out and eat it, right? If you want the life of Christ, you cannot leave it in the freezer and sit there in your comfortable chair and say, well, this is nice, but let's see what's on the news. Maybe eventually it will jump out of the freezer and make its way into my heart or belly or whatever. It just doesn't happen like that. The parents are free will. In other words, you have to choose. You have to want it. You have to move in that direction. And he says there's midwives in this story, right? Who are the midwives? If, if Moses is an example of Christ in us, if our parents, if the parents are the, our free will and are choosing to move in that direction towards God, the midwives are those who help that birth happen for us. And he says your reason are the midwives. So you might will very much. You might really desire and want to make it happen. Well, how is that going to happen? How are you going to get rid of the bad and take on the good? How are you going to move away from the sinful and take on Christ? How are you going to break free of slavery in Jesus and enter into his freedom? How will that happen? You have to think about it is what that means. The reason part, again, that's sort of philosophical, theological word. It's hard for me to enter into that, but you got to think about it. Have you ever thought about how that would happen for you? Like very strategically in your life. Um, let's say there's something in your life that you would like to get rid of. Uh, maybe you've been eating a lot of ice cream and you say, I'd like to get rid of a couple pounds, right? Maybe that's what you want to get rid of. Well, you can want that very much. But you're also going to need to think about, well, what, how, would that, how would that happen? You say, well... Maybe I'll stop going to get the ice cream. Or maybe you say, well, I think I'm going to walk a mile a day. Or you say, well, instead of buying potato chips at the grocery store, I'm going to buy potatoes. I don't know what it is, but you have to stop and think about it. Seems easy. We do this. All. It's not like this is hard. We do this with everything. I mean, in order to 
walk in the door this morning, you had to activate these capacities in you. Right? You had to choose to walk in, think about walking up the steps, etc. This isn't complicated stuff. In the same way, if you want Christ to be born in you, yeah, you have to want it and choose it, but you also have to think about how would that happen? How would that happen for you? What are the active steps that you think you would need to take? I mean, being here this morning is probably the most important. Opening up Exodus as we move through it and reading it is probably one of the most important. Coming to the table is one of the most important. Making use of the means of grace, most important. But your life is specific. And maybe you find that you get... I mean, I've, I've talked to folks in the last week who are struggling with faith, who are struggling with anger, who are struggling with hopelessness, and about three other things. We all have stuff we know we'd like to see set aside and things we'd like to take on, every one of us. But specifically in your life, how would that happen? Let's say, um, let's say you find yourself growing in despair or hopelessness or dejection is one word in the scriptures. And you find that that happens most often when you start watching cable news. Right? Well, one very concrete thing you could do, if you think about it, is say, I'm not going to watch the news. Instead, so we set something aside. Instead, I'm going to take up uh, this practice of when instead when I watch the news, I'm going to take five minutes and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to thank God for the things that I'm thankful for. And so I'm not going to be hopeless anymore. I'm going to look and see the good and I'm going to be thankful for it and turn that gratitude towards God. So, so like there, be strategic about this, right? In the same way that you would say, if I'm getting that ice cream, I got to get a scoop and the carton or maybe just a spoon in the carton. <laughs> be strategic about how you would combat the things in your life that you, would, you know God wants to set aside, okay? Um, so Christ is going to be born in us. We have to choose that and want it. You do. Not, I can't do that for you. Nobody else in here can do You have to choose that for yourself, and you have to think strategically about how that would happen. And then finally, um, uh, he says, it's not only um, difficult to change our habits, but you also have antagonists, right? So Pharaoh is out to kill Moses, Pharaoh wants to kill the Christ being born in us. The devil wants to put to death the one who we want to be born. Uh, not only that, he compares the waves of the river, of the Nile River, to the passions. So uh, anger would be one of those, classically understood. Um, uh, dejection would be another one of those, classically understood. Um, uh, gluttony would be another of those. Greed would be another one of those. Lust would be another one of those. You can go down the list. These are the passions. These are the things that toss you to and fro. Sometimes, do you recognize like you just get frustrated? Or you just have desires or wants that you don't even know where they came from? That's part of these passions, right? He says, if you want to escape those, the way you do it is you travel in the ark. Now, it's really interesting he uses the word ark instead of basket, isn't it? See, he's already doing this thing of connecting different stories. The ark, like Noah's ark, the one that travels through chaos to God's salvation and a new future, right? So 
Traveling the ark. He says the ark has eight boards. And these are the virtues. We talked about those before. Faith, hope, and joy being the cardinal virtues. Uh, Prudence and temperance and courage and so on being the others. We added to this the fruits of the Spirit, love and joy and peace, hope, patience, goodness, self-control. This is how you board up your ship. This is how you will travel across the waves of passion and come to land. Where does he end up? In the reeds on the side of the bank. In the stillness of that water. And that's the place where he is taken out and experiences his salvation. A place of dispassion. A place of stillness. A place in which he's able not to be thrown about by the waves but to enter into the stillness of God and the purposes of God. And from there, what happens to Moses? He delivers a whole nation. So maybe we could be used by God just for a few. I don't know. So there's, there's some of what's happening in this book. Did you see any of that when you read it this week? Yeah. That's why, that's why it's good we have the whole church. We have people who know a lot more than us that we can learn from. And so we're going to learn from Gregory of Nyssa. And hopefully that's going to become more concrete in your life this week. So uh, what I hope for you is that when you start going to the freezer for ice cream, you'll say, oh, yeah, I was also supposed to think strategically about how to grow in Christ this week. <laughs> yeah. So I, I want that for you. I want that for us. And I think Exodus is, uh, is the book that opens up all those possibilities. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.